Welcome to another episode of the Gonzo Chronicles. This is your host, Cyrus Alderwood. And today we have Christy Slaughter, who is the queen of local talk radio with us. Christy, thanks for coming back. You were with us when we did the top 20 books that everyone should read. How you been? I've been great. I've been looking forward to coming back on your show. You've been doing some traveling. I love to travel. You've been... uh, Go ahead. Well, you could rob people. Yeah, pickpocketing. I mean, it could be lucrative as long as you don't get caught. Um, but you've been to Outer Banks. You get down there quite a bit, a place I've never been and want to go. Absolutely beautiful. I went to New York a couple months ago. I went in May, upstate New York, on the Finger Lakes. It reminds me a lot of southwest Virginia, but you have those beautiful lakes. What? I love it why do they call them the Finger Lakes? Because they protrude out like fingers. Oh well, that's all right. I, the Occam's razor, the most obvious answer. I I don't know. That that could be fake. I could be making that up. I don't know. That just seems like it sounds right. It could be a guy named Henry Finger. I don't know. That would be an unfortunate name to have. It would be. I'm gonna go to Charleston and Charlotte, North Carolina next. Oh, cool. Now, Charleston, I've never been to, but I've wanted to go to. But what's in Charlotte? Charlotte, I'm going to the Vincent Van Gogh exhibition, Immersion Ah. Vincent Van Gogh. Have you heard about it? Uh, No, I have not, but it sounds really cool. I think it started in Paris, sold out in Paris, Toronto. They've got a few places in the United States that they're doing the show over this summer. But it's all the works of Vincent Van Gogh, and it's an exhibition where you walk through and then they project his art on the walls, on the floor, on the ceilings, and you get to walk through and and see all the works of Van Gogh. So I'm really excited to do that. They say it's incredible. So I think it's my birthday and I'm going to go check it out. Go do it. You know, I I collect shot glasses. So when people go to strange places, I ask them if they to take a look and see if they have a shot glass and I'll pay them for it, you know. So if you find one that's got an ear on it, or like a big styrofoam ear, or like just a poster of an ear, something reminiscent of this man's passion, right? So I don't know. I mean, he lopped his ear off for his love, right? Of course, she liked him even less after that. A shot glass shaped like an ear. I have one shaped like a skull. What kind of shot? What would be the perfect shot for a shot glass shaped like an ear? Uh. I would say tequila because, I don't know, tequila's just nasty. <laughs> tequila is nasty. <clears throat> I learned that lesson very uh, very hard in uh, grad school. Yes. So I did not carry that bad habit with me through life. Now, the next bad habit, I guess, when I would go to the uh, Hofbrau house would be Jägermeister. Oh. Now, I can't shoot whiskey for a guy that, shoot, that collects shot glasses. I will throw up. I don't care what it is. But Jägermeister, for some reason, uh, well, I guess after you had a couple of beers in you, a couple of pints, anything goes down. But, um, yeah. I, I've never had Jägermeister. Um, the people that I know that I've been around that had it turned mean. Is that a true statement? They get mean. I don't know. I mean, if a person's a mean drunk, they probably would be. Like when yeah, I, but when I would get that would apply. When I would when I would do Jäger, it didn't matter what I was drinking. I was just. Uh, 
just goofy. Like, I'm that goofy drunk you probably want to watch, but I'll ruin everything you watch on TV um, while we're, you know, while you're watching it. But other than that, um, if you had a tequila shot in an ear, you could put a worm in it, right? Some tequilas have worms, am I correct? That's true. But that would be interesting because you could have a worm in the ear. Yeah. That's extra disgusting. It really, yeah, that really is. I'm not sure. Maybe I should back out of that shot glass idea all you know of a sudden. What? I'll see what I can find. <laughs> I can just see a big styrofoam ear like you put on your hand, like the number one, but it's a big giant ear that you hold up during during his. <laughs> that's just weird. But we got a weird topic we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to talk about a serial killer. Yeah. So the murder, the murder castle. I want to ask you this, because there's so many shows that are on TV, and you watch a lot of stuff. There's so many shows on TV, like Investigative Discovery, and and then Netflix will show shows on serial killers. What is it that's so fascinating in the American lexicon about serial killers? When I was going over the historical data on the gentleman, I'm going to say gentleman loosely, on the man that we're going to be discussing this evening. One of the fascinating things I think about it and go over the information. And a lot of these people appear in society to just be normal. people. Yeah. Everyday people who are presenting themselves in a way that you would never suspect that they would have this double life as a criminal. And I think it's fascinating in a lot of ways I don't really understand. I'm a huge scaredy cat. Like if I watch something like a horror film or something like that, I have to have all the lights on and a lot of popcorn and some hands to hold. Like it's very, you know, because I'm an empath, I really can put myself in that situation of what it would be like. And so it's very descriptive to me. But I think there is some sort of, intrigue maybe it's a possible thought of the dark side of of humans and the culture or what could possibly be we've talked about this with one of your books like things that actually could occur and so i think sometimes it's like is this possible and some of the scariest things are this could this could actually be possible or has presented itself in history and so I think people are intrigued with the unknown. I think if there's a mystery or trying to come up with a logic reason behind it, I think it's just examining different facets probably of the human mind and behavior. I don't know. Why do you think that people are so intrigued with stories like that? Well, kind of what you said, it's the fear of the unknown. And I think that's one reason people like certain horror films or certain shows on TV, even your true crime shows, your NCISs and uh, what is it, CSI, the SUV or whatever, you know, the hell those are, you know, but yeah, those people watch those because there's that element of the unknown, the mystery of who done it. <clears throat> but with serial killers, it's such an edgy, scary, I don't know, fringe fear that people, I, I don't know, they just, they're attracted to it in a way to learn but in a way, they what they want to know, but they don't want to know. Does that make sense? And what you said, the fear of the unknown, and this could be just anybody 
next to you, you know, if we go to modern times, uh, remember the the BTK killer, Dennis Rader? They just arrested him a few years back. And this guy terrorized Wichita, Kansas. And Wichita is not that big. But there he was living amongst them all those years, working in the public sector. You know, he was uh, working as a government, a state government, local government employee, uh, checking, I guess, what one for violations of property rules and rights and so forth. And uh, But he was just that guy. Everybody thought he was a bit of a jerk, you know, raised his wife and kids and nobody knew that any better. But I think one of his kids suspected him and followed him and saw him drop in an, uh, a package where they where the BTK knew where they knew the BTK was dropping something off. And then one of his children called and reported him. And, yeah, that's that's just weird. Like, right there in your own household all those years. How does the wife not know? And maybe she didn't, or maybe she suspected, but no, no I, there's no way that would happen in my household. But yet there that man was. And when you think how lucky are they to be alive that he didn't snap and do something to them? Because that's such a weird, I don't know, just, it's such a weird, scary topic, but it's it, yet it's something that, fascinates people uh, over and over that they watch it on uh, almost, you know, weekly basis on TV shows. And here we have tonight's topic. We're talking about H.H. H. Holmes, uh, which might have been America's first serial killer. And he used um, a lot of lies and manipulation. And, you know, everybody thought, you know, he was a doctor. So people just naturally assume they can trust the guy. And yet he used... The uh, World's Fair in Chicago uh, in the late uh, eighteen in the like eighteen nineties to lure people in and just rack up victims. Uh, and uh, but this was a uh, this was a book that somebody wrote called "The Devil in the White City" some years ago, and it hit the bestseller list at the time. But this is one of those serial killers I think that people once in a while will dredge up and talk about on a show like this, but. Um, the fact that he might have been America's first, and that's when the fascination, well, maybe took hold in, in our country with uh, serial killers. Before that, I guess it would be Wild West gunslingers. How many how many victims did Billy the Kid rack up, you know? And that's what I was thinking when you were going over different topics and who we wanted to discuss. And you mentioned that about possibly America's first. And then all I could think about is before print, before media, how many of these cases occurred that were just undocumented? Yeah. And according to FBI statistics, at any given point in our country, at any given point in time, like right now, there's anywhere between 12 and 20 serial killers walking around in our country. So, I mean, it's, I mean, you don't have to rack up, you know, 50 bodies to be a serial killer. You know, you kind of get there at three or four. But um, it's the intent, I think, that makes people a serial killer. Somebody like Billy the Kid, probably most of his were self-defense. You know, there were people out gunning for him. Does that count as a as a murder if he's defending himself, you know, from people out bounty hunters looking for him? I don't know. He knew the life he was choosing. He knew he was going to have to kill. So in a, in a way, I mean, what, what would you think about that? No, never. Yeah, I think that would be really interesting. Not that I personally believe that it's right to take the life of someone else, 
as you said, where does self-defense come in? Where does culture come in? The time period that you're living in, what society sees as acceptable or unacceptable. I think those are all things that come into play. I interviewed a lady who is a psychiatrist who deals with veterans. And she was talking about PTSD and all sorts of different facets that come along with being a veteran. And she talked about moral PTSD and that sometimes you're doing what is right or you're protecting yourself or your country or what you're trained to do, but still there's this innate focus of morality and taking someone's life. And so I think that's fascinating too. What, what is the intention, as you said, behind it? What is the mind frame that the person who is in is doing it? I think those are all different facets that come into play with each one of these things. And to think that there are things that are occurring now, and you mentioned you know, the, these families who are living in a situation and don't know, the mind is so powerful. Sometimes the mind can allow us to believe whatever we choose to believe, whether it's survival, coping mechanisms, delusion, protection. We can end up fabricating a story in our mind to protect ourselves, to protect the person that we love, even though we know that they're possibly doing things that aren't socially acceptable or whatever the issue is. I think it's really interesting and fascinating and, and as you said, if you're in that kind of situation, you're very blessed if you're not armed either. Yeah. Now, this guy, H.H. H. Holmes, that we're going to talk about tonight, um, and uh, I'll just kind of kick this off a little bit. He was His, his uh, birth name was Herman Webster Mudgett, but he later uh, became known as Dr. Henry Howard Holmes, or H.H. H. Holmes. And uh, he was his killing spree... And he was born in 1861. He was hung in 1896 at the age, I think it was 34, was it? Uh, did I read somewhere? And he was active with his murder spree from 1891 to 1894. <clears throat> and the weird thing about this guy, we'll, we'll kind of get into this. I, I want to kind of have you talk a little bit about this guy's early life and what where it led him up to um, where he started killing was that you know, he started, he came from just a regular family. And at the end of his life, you know, he confessed uh, to killing 27 people. Um, but at the time, he was lying because police found that some that he confessed to were actually still alive. And he confessed all this while he was waiting execution. So the guy not only was a serial killer, but he was a compulsive liar. Uh, he was a schemer, a manipulator. Any, any bad word you want to attribute to some of America's worst criminals this guy fit the mold kind of like all into one. And uh, he really used uh, his ability to gain people's trust to lead them eventually to their deaths and uh, was a schemer and a, like an insurance fraud, all kinds of stuff, insurance fraud, like you name it, this guy, this guy has done it. Um, so a con artist, a polygamist, because he married several women uh, at the same, without divorcing any of them. And uh, he was a subject probably of what I read by the end there, over 50 lawsuits in Chicago alone. And um, so he was killed just before he, his 35th birthday. 
and he owned what was informally called the Murder Castle in Chicago, Illinois. Um, Christy, he came from just like a normal home. Do you want to talk a little bit about like his early years? Yes. The interesting thing is he came from a rural town that I think that a lot of people who have a success story could replay. You know, he came from a small rural area, and one of the things that I think was fascinating to me about the whole story is he was well-educated. Yeah. I think sometimes society views people who are criminals as being uneducated, which is definitely not the case, and not in the case of Holmes at all. And from what, from the information that I read, you know, he came from a very traditional loving family. You know, we also think a lot of times in society that, oh, if you're a criminal, you came from a really tough, abusive background. But yeah. as far as I could, could find, that really wasn't the case. He was interested and became educated. I think he became a pharmacist, if I'm yeah. correct about this. And so it, he had this lifelong uh, draw to becoming educated, but then he used that education as manipulation. They had, uh, let's see, I guess Murda was one of his wife. He, I guess he was married to Clara, then uh, got married to Murda. They had a daughter, Lucy, in 1889. He, wh <laughs> this is, uh, you know, he, I can't even, it's almost like, this is why I can't have the words for this, it's almost unbelievable. The story is almost unbelievable in the fact that you think, how can somebody be so clever? And I know a lot of times we think, oh, that's very clever as being a positive term, but how he used all of his knowledge to be able to do what he did. But in those early years, you know, I know that he graduated uh, from the University of Michigan, from medical school, and then while he was there, he was accused, I guess, of stealing some bodies, yeah, maintaining them, collecting insurance policies. So it's it's almost the more knowledge that he gained, then that propelled him even in those early years. And you know, you talk about his early years, thirty five. Yeah. To think about his success in careers and then all of the horrible things that he did within 35 years is just unbelievable. Yeah, it's astounding. I mean, because it's not like he came from a family of like rough people. I mean, he didn't have daddy issues or mommy issues, you know, none of this stuff. Um, his family, they were devout Methodists from what I read. Um, so they were church going people. They were farmers. Uh, his dad fit into like one of these people. It's a jack of all trades. Uh, painted houses, farmed, like, you know, all this stuff. Um, one of the things that they did notice early on with with uh, Herman, or we or H.H. H. Holmes now, was that um, he was very terrified of going to the doctor. That was one of his personal terrors, and he, he hated it. But then at that point, that's when he decided he wanted to be a doctor. And um, he they the people had said that he had tortured... Uh, animals, um, and uh, and some said that he uh, 
well, see, for what I read here, it's like, it says uh, later attempts to fit Holmes into the pattern seen in modern, modern serial killers have described him torturing animals and suffering from abuse at the hands of a violent father. However, can, other eyewitnesses uh, could not prove any of that. So from what I read mostly, you know, like you said, loving home, he didn't come from, come from this. But so at 16, uh, he graduated from uh, Phillips Exeter Academy and took teaching jobs in uh, Gilmanton and then later in nearby uh, Alton in New Hampshire. And then um, on July 4th of 1878, that's when he met, he, he married Clara that you mentioned. But like, like you said, his careers were really impressive. Not, he became a certified public accountant, um, then became uh, the city manager of Orlando, Florida. So this is somebody that's very much in the public eye and probably relishes off of this, uh, became a pharmacist and, you know, was a doctor at that point. Um, he uh, enrolled in the in the University of Vermont in Burlington at age 18, but left after one year because he didn't like it there. In 82, he entered the University of Michigan's Department of Medicine and Surgery, and he actually graduated in June 84 after passing his exams. While he was enrolled, he worked in the anatomy, uh, the anatomy lab under Professor Herdman, then the chief anatomy instructor. Uh, he had apprenticed in New Hampshire under another doctor, Nahum White, uh, who was a noted advocate of human dissection, which this was something at the time was still sort of taboo. They didn't want to do that, but he was that he was a big proponent of that. And that really, I can think, propelled Holmes into taking bodies and dissecting them. And uh, use, he would actually sell the uh, skeletons as, um, I guess, to uh, school departments, health departments you know, for medical students. And he would also sell some of the bodies as cadavers after collecting insurance and faking their burials would turn around and sell these bodies as cadavers. And he was making a lot of money doing that. Um, and he, uh, defrauded the life insurance companies. According to him, he admitted this, um, when he was first suspected of murder, he admitted to using cadaver, uh, cadavers to defraud life insurance companies several times, as he said, during college. Uh, some people speculated up to 20 times. Now, how clever do you have to be? And what kind of mindset do you have to be when you have that much knowledge and you can be that successful at life without going that route that he chose to go that route? That's just a, you're, you're walking into a dark world at that point with this guy. Cyrus, did you read in your research that he was bullied as a child. I've talked about bullying a little bit on my show and the impact of that, especially in the adolescent years. You had said a little bit about his dad, but did you read that? No, I was curious, but I didn't find it. Did, did you happen to find anything? I did. It just um, one of the articles that I had looked at, I would have to find. I'm not sure where the source is. I can send you that, but... It talked talked about him being bullied as a child, having run-ins with bullies. So that makes me think that it was more than just possibly, you know, one person who forced him to face death by making him touch a skeleton. So I think there's some speculation that possibly the obsession with that came very early on and then dealing with the pain of being bullied probably exasperated that 
obsession that he had. Possibly so. I, I did read where um, several uh, people that lived in the home, lived in the area near him and Clara, said that he was very violent with Clara, his first wife. And um, before he graduated, she moved back to New Hampshire and had nothing to do with him after, which was lucky for her because we know coming up in his life, the others who came into his life um, were not so lucky to still have their lives. Um, so um, from what I read here, uh, so she moved back to New Hampshire in 1884 and lost contact with him. Um, after he moved to Moore's Fork, uh, New York, a rumor spread that Holmes had been seen with a little boy who later disappeared. Holmes claimed the boy went back to his home in Massachusetts. Uh, no investigation took place, and Holmes quickly left town. That wasn't the first time a rumor was said of him with someone young, uh, a child, and then that child never being found again. And then him making some other claim and nothing ever being looked into. So um, that could have been a pattern. Because from what I read, Christy, there's because he claimed he killed 27. Some I read somewhere that they only verified he was only convicted of the one murder that we'll get into, but um, that he had killed only nine. And then I read another source that said because of the murder house that he owned and the number of people coming through Chicago during that time that went missing, he could have been he he could he suspected of between 20 and 200. And we're talking about from 91 to 94. I mean, this like three and a half years, three years. Uh, so that's a, that's a pretty tough murder spree. Um, so it says here he later traveled to Philadelphia, got a job as a keeper at Norristown State Hospital, quit after a few days. He took a position at a drugstore in Philadelphia, but while he was working there, a boy died after taking medicine that was purchased at the store. Uh, people wanted to accuse Holmes of poisoning him, but he denied any of this. And uh, he, but he immediately again left the city. So does that point to him, maybe, or maybe just paranoid? But um, nonetheless, every time a death happens, somebody looks at him, he is gone the next day. Uh, right before moving to Chicago, that's when he changed his name to Henry Howard Holmes, and that was to, um, I guess, be a, you know, avoid any previous scams that anybody could tie him to once he got to Chicago, and. Um, in the in the after he got arrested years later, uh, he confessed um, that uh, he claimed he had killed his former medical school classmate Robert Leacock uh, in 1886 for insurance money. Uh, however, that wasn't true. He, uh, Leacock died in Walford, Ontario, in 1889. So, in so in 86, I guess he was still married to Clara. Uh, he, he then married uh, Murda Belknap. Uh, who was also from Pennsylvania. He married her in Minneapolis, Minnesota, filed for divorce with Clara a few weeks after marrying Murda, which he was, you know, makes him a you know, polygamist, and then uh, he alleged infidelity on her part, which was never the case. Um, so the claims couldn't be proven, the suit went nowhere, and uh, the paperwork that people still found later on said that she was probably never even informed of the suit, in any case, the divorce was never finalized, so they didn't get divorced, and uh, the case was dismissed in uh, 1891 on what they call grounds of want of prosecution. 
So, you know, he's, he's trying to get out of that, but, um, you know, so he's, he still has all these things to going on. And then this leads him to Illinois because he wants to go to Chicago before the world's fair. Cause he wants to, he wants to be this huge businessman. And right there, uh, Christy, if you want to jump into what he started at that point, when he got into Chicago in August of 86, he was prepping for this world's fair from that point. So he built this castle, essentially, that had 60 rooms in the house and 51 doors. And if you Google Holmes, if you look at the information on him, there are some depictions of what the architecture looked like. Have you looked at any of those? Yeah, I looked them up. There's several YouTube videos that allude to it as well. And uh, I wrote down some descriptions that the police had after they went and after they started investigating. So. There, there were oddly shaped rooms. There were staircases that went to nowhere. There were doors that didn't go in anywhere. And one of the interesting things I thought about this whole thing, and of course there's been some descriptions of the building as being very ugly, not really appealing to the eye, but he wanted to make this hotel so that people could come and stay for the World's Fair. And the first level was based on having rented stores and shops, so the exterior would look very normal, would give yeah. local businesses a place to be able to sell their goods and things like that. And then upstairs was where the living quarters would be. Yeah. The second floor of the hotel was for the rooms for the quote-unquote guests. Yeah. Yeah. Third floor was all his, but he had other apartments up there, too, that people could rent. Now, here's the interesting thing about when this building was built. And you're right. He had all these businesses down on the bottom floor on the sidewalk, so it looked so legit. You know, just a regular – it didn't want to draw any attention. This is your business district. Uh, people could be walking to the uh, – Actually, where the World's Fair was going to be, which was, what, about a mile, mile and a half away. So it wasn't that far. Um, so people could walk to it in you know, 20 minutes and be there and then walk back to their their rooms that they were renting. But um, the weird thing about it is he kept changing builders, these developers that would come in. He had the, he had the blueprints and the schematics and everything done himself. And then he would have a builder build a certain amount. It's like, oh, you're screwing it up. You're fired. He would hire another one to come in and do another part. And then another one to come into another part until he finally got it to the way he wanted it before the World's Fair started. Now, I think the reason he did that, and and you, uh, you you can get into this a little bit too, but there were things that he had built into that architecture that he did not want just one person knowing. He wanted to split it up and keep the knowledge separate, you know, so that a builder could say, hey, why is he soundproofing walls? You know, why, why are they uh, uh, building? in you know um he controlled the atmosphere the temperature and everything on all these from his third floor uh dwellings he could control all this and there were supposedly some areas that were gas chambers mm -hmm. yeah actually yeah there was uh he would have on the mantles of these these apartments and these rooms he would have a little fireplace but he would have, like these gas 
um, candles, and people could turn them on, and he would have the ability to have them turned on, uh, and you could light your candle. But that actually had a gas that would sedate people, and they didn't know it. So he had the, the ability to, even if you didn't have it on, to turn it on from elsewhere and have the gas seep even if you didn't have the candles on so that people wouldn't know. And if this was in every room. And that was... And I, I had heard that, you know, he would hire people, as you said, specific people for certain tasks. So no one knew the whole scheme. No one knew the whole setup, the whole floor plan, the whole architecture bits and pieces. He would hire people. They would do a job. He'd fire them without, you know, without pay. And then he was, he was the mastermind and oversaw, supervised the entire construction. Mm-hmm. So he was the only one who knew that. Now, I don't know about you, but this just freaks me out a little bit. I like to think in today's time, nothing like that would happen. But again, as we had discussed at the beginning of the podcast, think what kind of mastermind intelligent people who possibly you have to wonder if he thought this was just a game in a lot of ways how could he manipulate people gain knowledge take control it does kind of give me like the heebie-jeebies honestly yeah it makes me think well maybe somewhere Along the way, I'm going to be checking things a lot more closely when I go stay somewhere. Again, we assume that nothing like that would happen in today's time with uh, our knowledge and hopefully increased morality and technology and things like that. But these people, I'm sure, who came to the hotel, coming to the World Fair, were bringing their families, were coming to have a, a trip of a lifetime. We're unsuspecting as well. Yeah. And when you think about it, even going back to, say, the 1990s, uh, late 1990s, I remember there was um, uh, just some horrible breaking news about this, uh, a couple of hotel chains. I think it was owned by the same group. But um, if you go into a hotel and you notice the mirror, if there's a scratch on the mirror or a little missing place of what the mirror, the reflected part is, people were that own these chains are literally putting video cameras behind those little spots and they can video everything in the room. And a lot of the mirrors that you see are right in front of the beds. They would have me aiming right at the beds to catch people in the act, uh, recording people having sex without their intent, um, video in the bathrooms. Um, and it was, it's, they, they got caught red handed back in the late nineties. I remember this. And it made me think like, man, every time I go into a hotel and there's a little scratch on the mirror, what the, you know, that better be a flat wall on the other side or I'm going to gonna be a little nervous, you know. When, when Cyrus comes in, he has a drill gun. Uh, yeah. And he has a hammer. A lot of suspicious things. Duct tape. And you just basically, we're not even thinking about bed bugs at this time. No. Deconstruct a room. Make sure there's not any shady business going on. <laughs> and, you know, it, it is funny, but it isn't funny at the same time because... Some people have just part of their nature or their domestication, a tendency to be more suspicious, and it can really lead to an absolute fear and worry and sometimes an obsession if people hear stories like this or they hear something on the news and then it becomes paralyzing sometimes. Yeah, it does. Yeah, the worst part about H.H. Holmes 
was um, that he, uh, in some of these rooms, he had trap doors that were built, and no one, no one ever knew it. He also had what what looked like a laundry chute that went all the way from the third floor all the way down to the basement, and it didn't stop on the second floor. I mean, it wasn't like a regular laundry chute, but it was a chute big enough to fit bodies down. And he would, when he would um, gas somebody on the second floor or whatever, he would find the chute that he had built hidden, and he would drop them down into the basement. This was the basement below the pharmacy that was the main store on the bottom floor of this building, the murder castle. And uh, But everybody around there just called it the castle, because that's what they thought, because he literally bought a city block and had, had all this developed. And, uh, and he had a candy store down there. He had a, like a soda fountain, just, you know, a little restaurant and cafe and all this down there. And he would drop these bodies down to the first floor or the basement. He would go down there and he would dissect them. He had a kiln built into his basement. Now, people would wonder, why did he have a kiln built in? Because people asked him, and his excuse was, he likes to blow glass, and you need a kiln to do that. And he would often send his product somewhere else to have it finished. And uh, that was his excuse. But that wasn't what he was doing. Actually, he was burning bodies down there. And uh, he would sell, he would take some of them, he would collect insurance on some of them and uh, sell the cadavers. Or uh, he would, you know, fake the burial and then sell the cadavers. But he would also go down there and dissect and play around with these bodies. Then he would put them in a kiln. Sometimes they weren't even dead when they were down there. He was just torturing them. Then he would put him in the kiln, and they did find one of his victims, a little boy. They found his uh, jawbone and enough teeth to uh, um, verify it was him. But they didn't have enough proof. They found blood all over the floor when they finally investigated in the basement. And a lot of it was animal blood. And he claimed he liked to go hunting, deer hunting. So there's all this animal blood down there. But there was so much blood, they couldn't tell which was animal, which was human. So they, they had no evidence there. Everything was burnt up into the kiln, so they had no evidence there. And they they knew he had done this. They just they just couldn't prove it. So he did get arrested, and uh, in an 1885 or, or 1895, let me find out. He he was hanged to death. Now this is kind of interesting because usually when you hang, your neck breaks. All right, his neck didn't break, Christy. He hung and twitched and fought for 20 minutes before he died. And I don't know if I would say that's justice to, in some way. But his, you know, if you go back and look at the murders that, that we know he did, um, the first one was Julia Smith, which is a mistress of his. Uh, she was the, uh, the wife of a guy by the name of Ned Connor. Uh, who had moved into Holmes' building and began working at his pharmacy jewelry counter. After Connor found out about his wife's affair with Holmes, he quit his job and moved away, and he left Smith and her daughter, Pearl, behind. Uh, so Smith gained custody of Pearl, and she remained at the hotel, continuing her relationship with Holmes. Uh, but Julia and Pearl disappeared Christmas Eve, 1891. And Holmes later claimed she had died during an abortion, Although he wanted her to have an abortion, she was pregnant with his kid, and he wanted her to have an abortion, but he said he wanted to be the one to perform it. Oh, now God. that's quite sick in and of itself. Yeah, that's. Uh... Um, but nonetheless, they both uh, disappeared that evening, and um, 
what really happened to them was never confirmed. They suspect the kiln burned them up. Um, another uh, another one was uh, Emmeline Sagrande. Uh, she began working in the building in May of uh, 1892 and disappeared that December. Uh, another woman who vanished was Edna Van Tassel, also uh, who was believed to have been one of Holmes' victims. Uh, he uh, Holmes' usual murder method was by suffocation. He would use uh, chloroform. He would he would smother them with chloroform, and uh, the, you know that overexposure to uh, gas fumes too. Uh, trap them in an airless vault, and then have them, and then they would suffocate. Uh, that was some ways he would kill them. Um, he also, this is what he claimed after they arrested him. He would use starvation and burning victims alive. Uh, in his castle, as he called it, um, as part of his methods of killing people. Uh, so this is kind of a sad part of what happened. In 1893, a uh, one-time actress by the name of Minnie Williams moved to Chicago. Did you get a chance to read about her? Tell us about her. Okay, Minnie Williams. Um, he claimed to have met her at an employment office, and uh, so... But then again, there were rumors that he had met her in Boston like a bunch of years before. Um, but he gave her a job at the hotel as a personal stenographer and and um, persuaded her at that point to transfer uh, the deed to her property in Fort Worth, Texas, to a man he knew, um, Alexander Bond. And Alexander Bond was just another alias of Holmes. So he talked her into, I guess, transferring the... Uh, the land so no one else could come claim it from anything that she owed. So in 19, in 1893, uh, the so-called, you know, Williams transferred the deed and Holmes, he was a notary also. So he sat there and signed it himself, notarized himself that, uh, um, that she had signed the deed at that point over to a business partner of his by the name of, of Benjamin Peitzel. And this is the guy, um, this is where he kind of screwed up. So he gave Peitzel the alias name of Benton T. Lyman. So she signed it over to Lyman, basically, which is Peitzel. Uh, the next month, Holmes and Williams, uh, presenting themselves as man and wife, were in an apartment in, uh, in Chicago and um, over near Lincoln Park. And uh, Minnie's sister, Annie, came to visit. So um, this is in July, and she wrote to her aunt that she uh, had planned to accompany her brother Harry, as she was calling him now, to Europe, but neither Minnie nor Annie were seen alive after July 5th. Um, it is assumed that he had killed them both. So he was such an entrepreneur, and he, based on his former medical education, his connections, he kept selling skeletons to the medical labs and schools, and this is what they assumed a lot of these skeletons went, where they went. Um, he said, he's also said, uh, he, and sometimes a hired assistant were accused of stripping the flesh off of the bodies, dissecting them and preparing them, uh, preparing the viable skeletons. The rest of the remains would be tossed into pits of lime or acid, affecting, effectively breaking down any remaining evidence. And of course, if you're, if you're cleaning deer down there too, or whatever, hunting, whatever you're hunting. You're going to taint any blood that's left on the floor. Um, so he, he actually got arrested. Right, this is did you read where he got arrested was 
they're pressing to prosecute for arson. Holmes left Chicago in 94 and reappeared in Fort Worth where he, where he inherited that property he had Minnie Williams sign over. Uh, so he inherited that property from the Williams sisters. Uh, so at the uh, intersection of what was Commerce Street and 2nd Street in, in, in uh, Fort Worth today. Um, so he uh, attempted to build this incomplete structure down there without paying for his suppliers and contractors. Uh, the building, unlike the former of his properties, was not a site of any additional killings. He was arrested, arrested and jailed in 1894 for the first time on the charge of selling mortgage goods in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, he was bailed out, but while he was in there, he struck up a conversation with this convicted outlaw named Marion Hedgepeth. Now, uh, that guy was serving a 25-year sentence, and he uh, he and this guy came up with a plan to swindle an insurance company out of $10,000 by taking out a policy on himself and then faking his death. So um, he was going to pay this guy $500 in exchange for the name of a lawyer who would be trusted. And anyway, that's when he, he, he got caught doing that. Peitzel, his other partner, Benjamin Peitzel, he agreed to fake his own death so that his wife could collect 10000 Now, this is where he, he really effed up. Um, she was supposed to split that with Holmes and this other guy, uh, Jephthah Howe. The scheme, which was to take place in Philadelphia, called for a Peitzel to set himself up as an inventor under the name of B.F. Perry and then be killed and disfigured in a lab explosion. Holmes was to find an appropriate cadaver to play the role of Peitzel. Instead, Holmes killed Peitzel by knocking him unconscious with chloroform, setting his body on fire with the use of benzene, and in his confession, he implied that Peitzel was still alive after he used the chloroform on him before he set him on fire. Can you imagine setting your business partner on fire? I mean, alive. Right, and, yeah. and again, as you mentioned earlier, he was a pharmacist, so he had access to pretty much anything he needed. Yeah. So come to find out, actually, he lied. Forensic, forensic evidence showed that chloroform was not put on his body until after he was dead. And, uh, yeah, so that was something uh, that um, they were trying to gas him so it looked like he died, you know, accidentally. But, um when they found out that that was after, they said, oh, wait, this is murder instead. Uh, Holmes collected the insurance payout on the basis of the genuine Peitzel corpse. Holmes then went on to manipulate his unsuspecting wife, Peitzel's wife, into allowing three of her five children. This is even horrific, too. Uh, Alice, Nellie, and Howard to be placed in his custody. Did you read what happened after that? It wasn't at all, was it? So he, I, I mean, this this is pretty this is pretty rough stuff. Uh, uh, he, this he he had her. I don't know why. After knowing that she would, he would kill her husband, and he's on the hook for this. That she let him take three of her children in custody. Why? Why? Why is that? I I don't understand. Although she, maybe she was fearful of her own life. Maybe he paid her. Yeah, but, yeah, I don't know. Maybe she still had some trust in him. Because keep in mind, all these women, and it was mostly women that he lured into that hotel. Right, right. These are people that trusted him because he was a doctor, he was a pharmacist, he was he a was business a owner. He was a manipulator, we know that. Yeah, a master manipulator. Um, 
but you know, so so she plays three of her five kids in custody, his in his custody. The eldest daughter and, and the youngest uh, remain with her, and Holmes and the three kids they travel throughout the northern United States and, and into Canada. Uh, simultaneously, he escorted Mrs. Peitzel along a, a parallel route, right, all the way um, while using various aliases to lie to her concerning her husband's death. Because at this time, she, well, I, I guess I misspoke a couple of moments ago, she didn't know that he was responsible for this. She, he he had told her the whole time that Peitzel, even though she knew there was insurance fraud, he was actually hiding in London, that which was not true. So, um, so he, so he lied about the, the true whereabouts of her three missing children. So he was in Detroit just before entering Canada. And even though he told her, you know, that they were elsewhere, um, I assume she thought he, she was sending the three kids to him, to Mr. Peitzel. And, and how did she choose the three kids? Like what kids did she decide to send? Well, the, the middle children, she kept the oldest and the youngest. Okay. So probably the oldest is not hard to take care of. And somebody that can help with the youngest, because they probably still need. I would assume that's why. But uh, but anyway, those kids were just blocks away from their mother in Detroit, um, and she never knew it. Um, so he was staying in another location with his wife, Holmes was, who was unaware of the whole affair. She didn't know any of this was going on. Holmes would uh, later. This is horrible. He confessed to murdering Alice and Nellie by forcing them into a large trunk and locking them inside. Chloroformed them, tossed them in a trunk. The two, the two girls, and uh, he, he um, put a hose at one end through, through the hole in, in the trunk, attached the other end to a gas line, and asphyxiated them. So they suffocated inside this box. He crammed them down into, and he buried their naked bodies in the cellar of his rental house. And this is in Toronto. And they found, I guess, I assume they found these bodies at 16 Street, uh, 16 St. Vincent Street in Toronto. Now, the home and the address no longer exists there. Uh, St. Vincent Street, you know, it was, had been realigned, I guess, years ago to a part of what they call Bay Street. Um, but, you know, the, the other boy was burned a lot. It was, it was burned. And, uh, you know, this this was just such a horrendous way of way he treated people. And, you know, again, the murder spree ended when he was arrested in Boston on November 17th, 1894, after being tracked uh, from Philadelphia by the Pinkertons. Now, if you don't know who the Pinkertons are, uh, the Pinkertons, they, those guys were bounty hunters uh, back in the uh, 1800s. If you had a fugitive or somebody that was on the run and you were looking for them, or somebody that had gotten into the country illegally that had maybe, well, they had a lot of uh, immigration coming into the country at that time, and you were finding somebody that was a criminal, and you needed to trace them. They, they were an investigative agency, and uh, those guys were rough. I mean, they had no qualms about shooting you, um, killing you on sight. I mean, just absolutely beating the hell out of people. I mean, they were rough. I mean, they were the bounty hunters you did not want to be caught by uh, because it, it was your ass if they caught you. Um, so he was put on trial for the murder of Benjamin Peitzel and was found guilty and sentenced to death. Um but, you know, it was evident that he killed these other people, especially the three children. Uh, but following his conviction, like I said, he confessed to 27 murders in Chicago, Indianapolis, and Toronto. Uh, but some of those people were still alive, so they didn't know what to, what to take seriously from him and what not to. 
here's the funny thing. This is this is kind of odd. You know, he was kind of a grave robber. You know, and he would he would dig up these skeletons and polish off cadavers after after uh, like butchering them up, Christy. And he would um, he would uh, sell the you know the the skeletons. But what he what he also did when he when he knew he was going to be hung, he was so paranoid that somebody was going to do the same thing to him that he requested that they bury him ten feet underground and surround him in a um, like a concrete enclosure so no one could get to him because he was afraid of that. Now years and you know, like decades and decades go by. Like we're talking like nineteen seventies or nineteen eighties. And there was some speculation and doubt that he was actually dead, that he was actually buried. So they actually uh, agreed to dig up his body, and no, to this day, no one knows where it's buried. They will not. It's it's in a it's an unmarked grave. Um, but he uh, they they dug it up and un undid the uh, the concrete enclosure, and because of that concrete, his body was so well preserved. His mustache was still intact. And like you, you could look at him and tell that yeah, that was him. Yeah. How wild is that? That's creepy. Yeah. Uh, so I have a question for you. This is just kind of how my brain operates. I think about like motive. What what would cause somebody to do something like this? And I've been thinking about his victims and the way that he chose to torture them. And then there was always this underlying or overt topic of finances and money and entrepreneurship. I had read that he was actually paid $7,500 at the time, which would now, I guess, be over well over $200,000 for exchange for his confession. So even in the confessing of it, he was still like tapping into this making money. It seemed like almost everything he did, there was an exchange of money or trying to profit off of it, which I think is similar to some murder cases that we see, but not often do we see cases like this that there's this underlying motive of of accumulating wealth and making money. What what do you think about that? Well, it's, uh, it might be a form of narcissism, but he obviously did not look at humans as humans. He looked at them more like cattle or sheep. I mean, he just harvested them for his own profit and all of these schemes. And because um, I mean, because nobody went to waste really when you think about it, unless except the three children. But uh, and but you know, did he? sell like all these cadavers all these people that he killed did he butcher them up and polish them up and sell all of the uh the, the skeletons to these medical institutes maybe but there was certainly a profit motive and that's i mean when he looked at people he saw a dollar sign and not for what they could work and do but for like like cattle you know you just you're just harvesting steaks at that point you know i don't i don't know what kind of soulless person could do that. And I mean, the day I understand that, I hope that's the day I'm done. But, uh, you know, it's, it is very much an animalistic worldview. And I, and it's, it's hard to understand. And I think that's one thing that fascinates so many people and, and, and draws them to this is like, 
why? And and there's really no why. There was there's several different quotes based on different articles and books, and there was one that just stood out to me compared to all the others, and it's where Holmes is describing that he was a murderer, no, and he could not help the fact that he was a murderer. No more than a poet could help the inspiration to sing. I don't know. That's that's just creepy. That's just very creepy. Now the now the site where this, of course, that building's not there now. Um, but he had a basement that was built under that had tunnels, and the tunnels actually went under the street. I don't know if you knew that in the in the building of it. But what's sitting on that site now is actually a post office. It's the Inglewood Post Office in Chicago, and it sits on there. And there's a basement down there. And part of what they used in their basement was literally part of the basement that H.H. H. Holmes used to kill his victims. That is still part. And I think they probably walled off the rest of it. But but some of those underground, I think he was using the, those tunnels as escape routes if he ever needed them. Um, or maybe to store more bodies at some point. But people had claimed that they had, that, that post office was haunted. And, and I thought, well, that's weird, you know, that anybody, and I thought, well, with all these investigations with these ghost hunter groups popping up everywhere, did anybody ever go there and investigate? Well, obviously, that's federal property, so they don't let anybody come on and investigate, even though I found out they had had just countless numbers of inquiries asking to come in and investigate paranormal, you know. The only one they ever allowed to do it was some years ago, and it was uh, a group from the History Channel that came in and uh but but some even former employees have said they've heard noises they've heard screams they've heard they've seen things like moving they, they that they think that 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 particular location is haunted by those spirits that were that suffered and were tortured there from from 19, 1891 to 1894 in the murder castle and we'll never know how many victims were there because that kiln he could have gotten rid of any evidence of any number of people because people were coming and going during that whole time of the World's Fair and and Chicago was really starting to come into its own back then. And that and that's the interesting thing that I think the experts tried to look at is there were hundreds of missing persons on the missing person list at the same time correlating with the activity of homes. Yeah, and it wasn't just people that were just missing all over the city. We're talking about people that were missing in the vicinity of where Holmes was. We're talking about the, uh, the direct vicinity of right there. And you just got to wonder. I mean, he was a compulsive liar, lied, said it was 27, could it have been 200? Was it 20? Was it just the ones he got caught on, you know? And then you, then you have some people that say maybe he exaggerated. Maybe it wasn't 30. It was more, but intuitively, I think if you can follow the pattern and, and see what somebody's capable of doing, then history has shown that. I think you can probably read between the lines. Now, I had you on my show, and we were talking about the Georgia Guidestones. Yeah, yeah. And of course, you've written about it. You took a trip there, a very interesting trip. Are you going to take a trip to Chicago 
and nose around. <laughs> talk um, to some people and see if you can dig up some dirt. Probably not. not. Dirt. Literally, please do not dig up dirt. <laughs> I'll go down to the basement and start chiseling I'm not away. Asking you to, to go to cemeteries and dig up dirt. <laughs> that was a metaphor. <laughs> I, you know, probably not on a case like this. It's so old that uh, you know people have written and talked about. Um, you know, one 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 mystery that always kind of fascinated me was out in Denver, uh, Cheeseman Park, and the history behind Cheeseman Park and how that became what it is is such a macabre, scary story. And it turns out there are countless parks around the country, city parks, that came about this way. Um, people are literally at Cheeseman Park walking over top of graves and had no idea that uh yeah this it, it was a I'll, we'll, we'll get we'll hit that topic another day but that is a really really wild story of how that park came into being and people to this day say they still see little children walk people that from long past uh that that was that was brutal um the history behind this park that everybody so enjoys in downtown denver um it's built literally on on graves of of some some good people and some horrible people. Thank you. I'm going to sleep with all the lights on tonight. H H Holmes. So if anybody's interested in looking more into this, um, you can you can YouTube some stuff. There's plenty of stuff on YouTube. Devil in the White City is a really good book uh, that really kind of captures Chicago at the time. And we'll give you a full bio of H H Holmes and and all of his victims and potential victims. Uh, I, th I thought it was a well-written book, so if anybody wants to check that out, I'm sure you can find it on Amazon. And uh, you'll find me on Amazon too, right, Christy? That's right. That's right. So I got about yeah. got a few books on Amazon, so if anybody wants to uh, find that Guidestone book, just go uh, look up Revelation Calling, Cyrus Alderwood, and uh, yeah, I hope you guys can sleep well. I hope your I hope your cemetery or I hope your post office isn't built on graves. <laughs> Next time I travel, I'm taking a whole suitcase of investigative tools. Maybe we should put a list together. Yeah, there's all, so many places. One place I do want to go to is Point Pleasant, West Virginia, where the Mothman mystery took place. And just kind of, you know, nose around there a little bit. Now, I know that's been overdone, too. That's kind of a close, that's a close trip. That's not too far away. And I do, uh, for some reason, the uh, all these legends of piracy along the, East Coast, the Carolina Coast, um, and just there's so much more than just what people read about or think about. There's so much treachery that happened and like heartbreak and sorrow and murder and mystery and lying and mayhem and conniving and governments that uh, you know can't be trusted and pirates that can't be trusted either. So many stories that I, I'm kind of a little bit interested in, in piracy at this point too. So. That could be that could be a fun retreat that we do. People, we could map it out. People could uh, learn about the stories from the East Coast yeah. and immerse themselves. That that would be a fun excursion to do. And if I could learn to use my video camera a little better, I'd love to be able to have some supplemental stuff for YouTube to to show people and uh, you know maybe have a video where we pop up things from like H H Holmes that we talked about that people can see if they want to go to YouTube and listen to the show. And uh, one of these days, I'm, I'm tempted to do a live one from uh, YouTube. I haven't done that yet, but we'll see. Well, to be continued. 
Hey, so uh, thanks, Christy, for coming on to the show. I really appreciate it. And uh, what, what's going on next with your show on Super Talk? Each Saturday morning on 92.9 FM, Super Talk Saturday mornings with Christy Slaughter. I interview a wide variety of guests. You've probably been on my show. Do you think you've been on a dozen times? Probably. Probably. Yeah. So I've got a new podcast that's going to be coming up soon. So we'll link and post all that information. I'm interviewing lots of incredible authors, non-for-profit organizations, musicians, just having a really good time telling people's stories. Well, and there's a lot of stories to be told. So thanks again for doing what you do there at the radio. Thanks for having me on so many times. I love, I love being on radio. It's fun. And uh, we'll, we'll definitely do this again. We'll pick us another topic and another crazy mystery that we can you know, maybe make people a little nervous about. And we'll, get, we'll, we'll, we'll go from there. Hey, thanks again, everybody, for tuning in to another episode of the Gonzo Chronicles. I will see you on down the road.